Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by two Canadian authors. Um, Trudy Morgan Cole is familiar to our audience for all the great writing she's done for uh, us and, um, and for Canadians as well. And we're honored to have a special guest here, Darcy Friesen Hossack, who just published a book called Stillwater, a novel that was recently reviewed by Trudy Morgan Cole for Spectrum. And now we get to hear from the author herself. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about Stillwater in the context of religion, and then we'll talk about Stillwater in the context of other things like family and food. Can you set up uh, the novel? Because I always think it's uh, fun to hear an author who's, you know, lived with these characters for so long. uh, Tell us what the story is about to them. Okay. Well, first, I'm going to say that it is fiction. Um, It is a little bit of auto fiction. So some of it is based on my own experiences, but it really is fiction. I know people show up at my readings and um, are convinced that it's memoir and that I've just cloaked it in the guise of fiction. Um, But these people are not me. They're not my family, even though I borrowed from all of us. So essentially, I have um, a family. Um, The mother is Mennonite, the father is Seventh-day Adventist, and in that context, their end times are just around the corner. Um, I've said it just as the COVID uh, pandemic is getting started, and um, Daniel, the father, is a nurse, but he is very anti-science, and he's concerned about the vaccines, and he's concerned about the government, and... um, And his brand of religion of Adventism kind of feeds into that and he becomes very paranoid and he ends up taking his family to live at a commune called Stillwater, which I based on a commune that used to exist in the North Okanagan in in British Columbia that was called Silver Hills that's no longer there. It's now a spa. but my mother once told me a story about going there when she was pregnant with me and there were all of these orange-eyed children um, because of all the carrots and all of the beets that they were fed and the carrot juice. So this is kind of a novel of what if, what what might it have been like if my Mennonite mother and my Seventh-day Adventist father had moved us there. Lizzie, however, is 16, not just about to be born. So you can see that it's very different <laughs> from my actual mm. life. Well, yeah, one thing that I found really helpful from Trudy's review is to really understand this in the context of Canada as well. Uh, And I was listening to an author talk that you gave Darcy in which it was very clear that there's not just a kind of kind of Mennonite writing world in Canada, but there's a West Coast Mennonite writing world as well. so I'm just curious from both of you, how does this, 
you know, how does this fit into the kind of Canadian uh, world of, of fiction and religion and, and, and how does the Mennonite part um, particularly uh, inform that discussion? Um, well, since you bring up Mennonites, I guess um, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Trudy, I want to thank you for that review. That was amazing. Um, it oh, popped thank you. Into my, into my inbox from a Google Alerts, and I sent it to my publisher. I'm like, look at this, look at this. <laughs> they don't hate me. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, no. But here in Canada, especially, Mennonite literature is absolutely huge. It started mm-hmm. a couple of generations ago with writers like um, Rudy, we- Rudy Weeb right now. Um, and for quite some time, it's been Miriam Taves, who you will hopefully recognize, um, who wrote Women Talking, which just won an Oscar. Yeah, great, great um, movie. So she's kind of forged this path. And I remember reading her probably 20 years ago, maybe even a little bit more. I read A Complicated Kindness, which was the book that she wrote that just kind of blew up in her face because Mennonites were so upset about being portrayed as anything but, you know, an idyllic community of brotherly love where everything is perfect. Um, And I remember reading that and I had been writing myself um historical fiction set in India, where I've never been, thinking that's interesting. I I realize now that would have been cultural appropriation, but I was very young and that was not a discussion that we were having at the time. So I'm I'm thrilled that that was never published. That was a good practice novel for me. But I read Miriam Taves and I thought, oh my goodness, my life was weird and interesting. Um, Never occurred to me that Adventism was weird and interesting. Um, I was still really close to that. No, who would want to, who would want to know about that? So I started writing Mennonites Don't Dance, and that took me a very long time to write because I was, I was still a learning writer. Um, and I found myself following in Miriam's footsteps, not, not that we're similar writers, but just that she could write about what she knew, what she had experienced. And that was something that perhaps I could do too. And it worked. Once I finished Mennonites Don't Dance, I started um, with Stillwater. I thought it was going to be another short story. Um, and to my horror, it turned out to want to be a novel. And I didn't even start it as thinking it would be Seventh-day Adventist. I had a Mennonite grandfather and a couple of kids in a scene that never made it into the novel. And... Um, and then all of a sudden, I found myself with a Seventh-day Adventist father who wanted to have a voice in this story. And so I started to explore that and started to kind of process my own experience in the Seventh-day Adventist church, which for me in Canada um, was a very conservative experience. Um, I went to uh, SDA Academy in Calgary in Alberta and Kelowna in British Columbia. Um, never heard of Spectre magazine. That absolutely would have been something that you you had to, you know, keep inside your textbook and, and hide from your teachers. And and um so I'm very much writing from a you know kind of post-conservative point of view and finding that that was really interesting and really traumatizing and that something that people can relate to whether they were Adventist or or just coming from a conservative evangelical kind of point of view. Um, because when you write fiction, and Trudy will understand this, that um, the more specific you are, the more universal 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I yeah, it's interesting to me because um, coming from Atlantic Canada, I don't know any Mennonites in real life. Uh, you know. It, Mennonite community in Canada is so, I know there's a community in Ontario, but it's so concentrated and it's such a part of the culture of Western Canada. Um, yeah. So everything I know about Mennonites, I know from fiction and, you know, from having read Rudy Weeb in grad school and uh, uh, more recently having, having read Miriam Taves. And I have a real, you know, as a writer, uh, I haven't written a whole lot for, in my books that have been, you know, published for for a mainstream audience. I haven't written a whole lot about Adventism uh, because I do have that feeling that it's so niche and unusual that would, you know, is, is anybody interested in this? I did a little bit in one historical novel, um, but when I wrote uh, a novel that was about being Adventist, I self-published it because I was, I didn't think it would have, you know, a broad enough interest. So I'm really uh, yeah, it's really interesting to me uh, to come across a book like yours, Darcy, and to see that uh, to see that perspective and to see it in a very mainstream piece of literary fiction that is is deservedly getting some attention. I think. Oh, thank you. I, I'm I'm kind of hoping other people will follow this the same way that people have followed Rudy Weeb and followed um, Miriam Taves and and so many others. You know, I I, I could I could spend ten minutes listing. We have a Facebook group, and I think there's two hundred of us. Um, Mennonite writers. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so maybe it's something that you'll consider after this, because I, I sure would love to read um, from other people's experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Trudy, before we move on to uh, talking about food, um, the way that Darcy kind of talked about writing what you know, you've been doing that in the Adventist context and beyond in a lot of ways. I'm just curious if you, when you, when you think about, you know, Stillwater is really focused on a very tiny part of Adventism, this kind of self-supporting world, which is incredibly influential actually, but it, you know, you go down to Loma Linda University, walk through the halls of a multi-billion dollar you know, state-of-the-art medical center. It's a long ways from Weimar or Stillwater or even the General Conference. There's something about the the characters that, um, you know, both of you have created, the Adventist characters that both of you have created that I think are really interesting. Would you mind maybe just talking about, you know, the char- kind of Adventist in fiction, as in what is it what is it like to kind of, invent an Adventist for an audience? <laughs> oh, well, let's see. I, I guess, um, like I said, I borrowed from myself, I borrowed from my family, but I also borrowed from um, my academy. So my my high school principal is there. I'm not, I'm not going to name him, um, but he, <laughs> he, he is um, Director Schlant. Um, in a lot of ways. And he is someone um, who, for instance, when he heard that a group of students from the academy were at the roller skating rink in Kelowna, went down there, marched into the middle of the rink, knelt down and began to pray for their souls. Wow. 
Um, so he is someone I absolutely had to borrow from. And then we've had, you know, some, some colorful pastors as well. Some that were absolutely wonderful in so many ways, but then um, turned out to be bigoted in others, which would be so disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were, there were teachers too. What can I say about them? Like I, I had a, a home ec teacher and I absolutely loved her. Um, but of course, she, she also taught us what passed for sex education. And, um, and that was an entire course on complementarianism, mm-hmm. naturally. And, uh, you know, we learned so many poisonous things from that. And we actually received extra credit for reading books like um, Irma Bombeck. And they were hilarious, but absolutely we were being taught how how to be a girl, how to be a woman, how you were going to put your husband first, you're going to put your house first, you're going to put your children first, you're going to put absolutely everything before yourself. So I think she found her way into uh, Mrs. Chlant as well. So, you know, growing up with academies and with churches and with with friends, I, I did not find it difficult to, to just kind of take these different facets and create new people out of them. So they're all kind of, um, you know, Franken characters <laughs> based on people that I knew and, and still know some. Uh, for me, by far, my favorite a minor character, I guess, somewhat minor character in Stillwater is, of course, the academy biology teacher who uh, who who gets gets Lizzie the illicit copy of Charles Darwin. Which, you know, having taught in Adventist academies for ten years, although very much not a not a science person, so I wouldn't have been giving out copies of Darwin. But I could definitely relate to that to being the sort of quietly subversive Adventist yes. teacher. It's interesting, Alexander, that you draw that um, that comment about. Loma Linda and and Weimar because I remember hearing somebody saying and this was during the midst of midst of the COVID pandemic and you know a lot of Adventist churches were very much torn apart by responses to the pandemic. Um, someone saying there's basically two kinds of Adventists in North America: there's Loma Linda Adventists and Weimar Adventists. And even though I grew up on the opposite side of the the continent in in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, in a church that I think is not extremely conservative or extremely liberal, just very middle middle of the road. But because of, I guess, my family and the things I was exposed to, you know, I definitely grew up as very much a Loma Linda Adventist. And uh, and we knew that these self-supporting people existed, although there were no self-supporting institutions uh, here in Newfoundland. But we knew there were places like the fictional Stillwater in the novel, uh, but always thought of them as being just, you know, very fringe and very out there. So, you know, reading uh, reading a novel like like yours, Darcy, and hearing about your own experiences, and then you know, looking at my own experiences of a lifetime within Adventism, Adventism, and what I've used of that when I have used it in fiction, uh, it really just just reminds me of what an incredibly big and diverse world Adventism is. And that's even, of course, just North American Adventism, you know, before you get into the the actual much larger body of, of the Adventist church in the rest of the world. For sure. I think I think there's a difference too, just North and South, Canada and the US. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the General Conference in Canada, did they not just recently vote against ordaining women still to this day? Um, 
so yeah. I'm surprised surprised to to learn that um, women can be ordained in the United States. Only so it's the it's a it's the Adventist Church in Canada, but it's a, a, one of I think maybe seven unions uh, in North America, and um, there's two that have supported ordaining women. Okay, um, and and there's also a lot at the Canadian Union. No, sorry, the Canadian Union's example is that we'll employ women pastors without ordaining them. We right. just got our first uh, woman pastor in the SDA church in Newfoundland, where I live. Uh, not in the church that I attend, unfortunately, but a young a young woman pastor. And when I saw the announcement of her uh, her hiring, and it was you know pastor her name and then her husband's name and the kids, and I was like, okay, I have to go back and make sure I read that right. And then I had to text my friend who works at the conference office and was like did we just hire a woman pastor? Because that's awesome. Uh, but yeah. at the same time, of course, there is still that barrier uh, because, you know, most of the, most of the unions won't defy the general conference to the point of ordaining right. women, but will most will employ women in ministry. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up, you know, academy and church and I was absolutely being groomed for leadership. And I thought, um, I thought probably the next step would be they'd push me towards ministry. And then I learned I would never be allowed mm -hmm. to preach. So what I was actually being groomed for was to teach Sabbath school to children. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah. as as a teenager, they would put me in front of the church to to give small talks, not not mm -hmm. sermons. Um, and I, I just always thought I've just never encountered a, a woman pastor. They must be out there. Uh, I just haven't gone to enough churches. And then when I asked about it, um, I realized, of course, that um, that was just not done. Yeah. yeah. And as I think it's it's different in, you know, in different jurisdictions. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but that thing about being groomed for leadership is interesting uh, because talking about using bits of real life and fiction, there's an incident in my self-published novel, uh, Prone to Wander, which I drew directly from real life, which was based on myself and a guy in my church youth group. Uh, both doing half of the sermon for church youth day. And we each had, you know, 15 minutes and we each did a little sermon. I think mine might've been better than his, but Hey, he's a pastor now. Everything's okay. <laughs> um, but on the way, on the way out of the church, as people were shaking hands, uh, uh, everybody would shake my hand and say, uh, that was a great job. That was such a blessing. Thank you so much. I love that message. And everybody would shake his hand and say, that was such a great message. You should be a pastor. And I never had any desire to be a pastor, even if the church had ordained women from the time I was a teenager, it would have been the least likely career path for me. But that moment really stands out in my mind as like, yes, we're grooming you for leadership, but only up to a certain point. There's, you yeah. know, there's a very clear, there's a very clear glass ceiling. Right. Grooming you to be a pastor's wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that also would not have been a great career choice for me. <laughs> me either. Pastor or pastor's wife. I liked the idea yeah. of writing sermons and I liked the idea of studying. But when I realized, you know, that I would have to um, hypothetically um, mm -hmm. in, in this fantasy realm, shepherd a church, um, I'm, I'm deeply introverted and private. So that would have been a, a spectacular disaster, whether I was a pastor or a pastor's wife. So it's, a, it's you know, it, it doesn't. It, it didn't affect my career trajectory, but um, but it was difficult realizing that um, just because of my gender, I was considered unqualified. Yeah, there's something that that you're both um, 
getting at there that's kind of interesting to me is that kind of they knew where to put him in the example you gave, Trudy. Okay, you did mm-hmm. a sermon, you're going to be a pastor. They didn't know what to do with you. And in Stillwater, Lizzie is kind of, uh, she doesn't fit. You know, she's kind of finding her place. She's this, um, you know, she doesn't fit the roles that people kind of automatically, stereotypically assign as they're kind of figuring out who you are and what you're going to be. Um, and I'm just, yeah, that I'd love for you to kind of maybe talk a little bit about that, um, that kind of liminal state, that position, that movement that she does. Um, I, I, you know, it, there's a part of it that resonates with me because I had some more conservative, less conservative, even non-Adventist relatives. And so when you're coming of age, uh, you know, a teenager, you're sort of, oh, wait, there's people who don't do the things that my parents say is right. And they're doing some things that are overtly different. And is that okay? And I think she's doing some really interesting, you know, kind of coming of age um, thinking there. Can you maybe talk about that, that kind of the evolution that that's going on? Mm. Well, at first I was, I was very careful not to, not to make her me, to not say that she's, she's a girl in an academy who wants to be a writer because that was also kind of considered nonsense. Um, I, I was encouraged to be a musician. I played the flute. Um, so I was sought after for special music, of course. Um, and then they wanted me on a nursing track because, of course, in the end days, that would be a place where I could bring people to the Sabbath, um, on, you know, on their deathbeds. And I could do it covertly because they're about to die so they wouldn't be able to out me and I could continue my work. Um, so, you know, what what use is being a scientist, especially if you're not going to be a doctor or you're going to not going to be a nurse? You want to be a research scientist? Like, what, what good is that? That's only going to lead you down a path of thinking about evolution instead of creationism. And that's going to lead you, you know, straight into the arms of the devil. And, and you know, nothing good can come of this. And you're too intelligent. Um, you know, you shouldn't be so intelligent when you're a girl. And, you, sh- you know, you shouldn't aspire to these things. And... And, you know, although this may not come up for Lizzie, it probably did, just not on the pages. But, you know, what, what are you going to do when you're married and have children? Um, you're still going to go into your research lab? You know, what What good is that? Be a nurse. You can go back and be a nurse part-time afterwards. So this is the kind of world that she would have been growing up in. And um, and that's, you know, she's really, really on the fringe. So with without Miss Taylor, her teacher, to encourage her along those lines, she would have had absolutely nobody else in her life to encourage what she's doing and to validate that being an intelligent girl is is something worthwhile. So I I love Miss Taylor for that. I like to think that Miss Taylor is me now. Um, you know, making sure that this intelligent, brilliant girl has a chance to use her brain in a situation where her father especially um, doesn't appreciate it, doesn't approve of it, and her mother is just kind of falling in line. And um, so she's, she's walking this, really walking this razor's edge because she is Christian. She is Seventh-day Adventist. She doesn't not want to be these things. But she would like to be her authentic self. She would like to be fully her. She would like to be accepted. She would like to be validated. She would like to have everything that God created her to be 
be considered worthwhile. And she's striving for that. Um, to, and I hope that after the end of the novel, that's something that she is able to do is, um, to be, to be everything, to be everything that she needs to be and everything that God created her to be. Hmm. Well, let's talk about food here. It plays hmm. a big role in helping us understand, um, the differences between Adventist and Mennonite, uh, culture and eating habits and relationships to, um, the characters own bodies as well. Um, you, in your review, Trudy, you uh, highlighted that, and I'd just love to hear you maybe talk about reading it from the Adventist perspective. Uh, what jumped out at you um, as kind of ringing, especially true in this work of fiction? Um, I loved, I loved what you did with food in, in this novel, Darcy. I think it was so well done. And, you know, food, I, I felt it read as food as a metaphor for relationships. Um, so that the food at Stillwater does feel very austere. Uh, yeah, austere is a good word for it. Maybe unappetizing, um, very rigid. Uh, but also, I, I did love how well you captured the absolute weirdness of a lot of Adventist food. Uh, you know, and I, I come to this, I come to this as somebody who, um, again, grew up in a family. Well, I mean, the Adventist subculture is very different here in Newfoundland, because I grew up in a world where all the Adventists who were born here and lived here and whose families were from here ate meat. And then everybody who came in from outside, teachers and pastors, were all vegetarian. I didn't mean anyone was vegan until our pastor went on a vegan kick when I was 16 or so. And we were all like, what is this? Oh. Uh, but our, our culture was very much of eat meat at home and eat veggie food at the at the church potluck or when you have a pastor <laughs> for dinner. And that has everything to do with just the food culture of Newfoundland because, of course, it's very meat and fish-based because it's hard to grow stuff here. Right. So vegetarianism was a tough sell to the early Adventist pioneers and what they mostly did uh, – you know, like women of my grandmother's generation was just add a few Adventist dishes like split pea roast, which was a classic that my mom used to make uh, to their to their regular diet. So you'd have something to bring to a church potluck. So I grew up both both in and outside of that Adventist food culture. And and again, thinking of people who took it to the extreme of being vegan as wow, this is a little uh, over the top. So there was definitely all of that in, you know, in in that novel, there was both the sense of reading it as a bit of an outsider, but also of recognition. And, you know, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not, not, not going to deny that uh, I, I enjoy a good meal of haystacks as much as anyone to me, that's the <laughs> the quintessentially Adventist food. Um, but uh, then I found the contrast with the Mennonite food so interesting. I mean, the, to be fair, the Mennonite food is also very weird to anyone who's not used to it. It absolutely uh, is. Yeah. And particularly, I think, to anyone who is vegetarian or vegan, it's, it's you know, bizarrely uh, uh, animal-based, you know, to, an ex to a very extreme degree. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was an interesting, you know, contrast in the novel was that things like full fat cream and gravy and that sort of thing have these connotations of warmth and richness and comfort food uh, that uh, that Lizzie finds with her Mennonite relatives uh, that she definitely doesn't find in the Adventist commune. So yeah, I thought that was the way that uh, that that food culture was played with. And of course, the fact any novel that includes recipes, like I'm always going to be a, a sucker for that, because that's, that's just such a great touch, even if many of them are recipes that I would never want to try making. But it just was such a such a neat touch. Yeah, was the recipe thing uh, kind of early 
um, decision for you or did that come later? How did that enter in? It was, it was quite early. It was what I called my second first draft. Um, my first draft started, I started that quite a long time ago, um, probably even 13 years ago. And shortly after getting about two thirds of the way through, I suffered um, an extreme physical accident. I, I, in a way, I broke my back. I, um, I ruptured my, my sacroiliac joints. So for the next five years, I was unable to write. I was unable to sit. I was barely able to pick up a pen. And I was on so many narcotics that I couldn't think. Um, so, of course, that informs Marie's experience, which came in the second first draft. So when I was able to write again, um, or able to sit again, rather, at my desk, I found that I forgot who I was and I forgot how to do what I used to do. So I signed up for a mentorship with uh, an author, a Canadian author that I deeply admired, um, Gail Anderson Dargatz, and she's a two-time Giller finalist. And um, she brought me back to life as a writer. And she was the one who said, I think you need something at the end of each chapter that just kind of puts a stamp on it. So we talked about it and we arrived at doing recipes because that that seemed to be the most natural thing because of all of the food that always makes its way into my fiction and I just can't help it. And um, so I just started gathering up recipes out of, well, out of my, my home economics, my high school home ec recipe box, which I still have and is still full of all of these Adventist recipes. So I just started pulling them out and putting them together. <clears throat> and gathered a few others as well. <clears throat> Pardon me, I have a delicate voice. <laughs> I'm starting to shred. Um, so I started taking recipes from my husband's family as well, and that's where you're going to find um, the the mock chicken. Um, I believe that's in there with the curry. I hope that's in there. Um, and then the the one with the spaghetti and the the um, Vigilinks with um, French fries and soy sauce. That's for my husband's family. Um, there are some that I didn't put in there because um, <clears throat> they were a little bit too fringe. My my husband's father is from India. Um, so their curries are kind of adap adapted into the Adventist style. Um, so you'll have like um, fry chick or wham in, in your vindaloo. So I didn't put any of those in because I thought that was just going a little bit too far and I would have needed to um, rationalize recipes like that. So so that's kind of how the recipes came to be is with when I was writing with Gail. And then it just seemed so natural. And the kind of the funny part is when I started sending the book out to publishers before I landed an agent who then took over for me, um, one publisher uh, wrote back, um, hate the recipes, they have to go. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I don't think we're going to be a good fit. So I just moved on and, um, you know, didn't, didn't really consider the changes that they wanted made because I, I felt that they, they kind of overlooked the entire point of the book. And, and Trudy, like you said, the, the recipes are metaphor and, and they absolutely belong there. And, and I think they're there kind of for the shock value too. Like you write about it in prose, you write about it in scene and you experience it one way, but when you actually see the ingredients for, um, for Natina, written down 
you just cannot believe what goes into that recipe. And then too, that it's being peddled as health food because most of it is salt and you have salt in three or four different forms, you know, salt, seasoning, salt, um, soy sauce. And then I think one other, one other ingredient is, is salty as well. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the real culture shock of veering from that to like the chicken feet and, and the other things in the, in oh, the, yes, yeah, the recipes, yeah, you the know, it's, food. it's so it just, I, I grew I grew up with my my Mennonite mother first. My parents um, separated for the last time by the time I was about one and a half. So I grew up on this Mennonite food, this extremely rich um, animal based. And of course, that's because Mennonites come from a farming background like 500 years back in Europe. And this is food to pull the plow. You can't pull the plow if you're a vegetarian. It's just not going to work. You need that animal fat, whether it's, you know, whether it's the the pork fat or the sausage meat or the cream gravy. And um, you need that if you're going to go out and, and, you know, physically pull the plow. You know, the problem comes when you integrate yourself into modern society and you can't sustain that kind of calorie intake, but you would really, really like to because cream gravy on Vrenicki, which is um, essentially pierogies, but sometimes stuffed with fruit like Saskatoon's, it is the most glorious, glorious, indulgent thing. But you can only have that about once a year. If you're not pulling a plow, you're a writer at a desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, Trudy, can you, you know, as a, as reading this the the food part uh the the mennonite food is definitely shocking um of course it's uh you could you know it's breaking the biblical rules and i think it's always so <laughs> fun for adventists to really understand other how other christians um you know understand the scriptures uh, i think it, there's there's something in this book that helps i think too because it's not um you know it it it's it's a fair representation of this world of adventism and so i would think that an adventist audience open to reading fiction could could find uh, a kind of interesting uh, you know a kind of nice opportunity to to think about the ways that another Christian community is similar to Adventists, that that tight knit, you kind of know everyone, last names could tell you, you know, whether they're in or out in some ways. Um, I don't know, Trudy, for you, you know, in Prone to Wander, you're you're thinking about folks sort of coming of age and you know staying or going. Is there are there kind of parallels that you saw with Stillwater and in, in the ways that an identity is kind of formed or or changed in in encountering others? Yeah, yeah, you know, just that thing of of getting out into the rest of the world and seeing something different and bigger than the world you've been been raised in. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when I wrote. Uh, prone to wander i was starting with characters who were high school age at the beginning of the book and the different journeys that they all took uh from that that sort of tight-knit adventist community into the rest of the world is is what interested me because of course 
very much like you say about about Stillwater Darcy. You know, I wasn't writing autobiography. I wasn't writing memoir, but I was, of course, drawing and pulling from the experiences of all the people I'd grown up with and all the very different, different paths that that life led us down. Uh, but yeah, I do think a big part of that is the exposure to other people, other religious groups and 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 people who aren't religious at all and and other subcultures and discovering I can remember and this is this is beyond even you know being a uh, uh, being a teenager but as a young adult um, as a young teacher actually meeting some young people uh, from a an extremely extremely conservative, uh, sect, uh, and they would, they didn't even call themselves a church. They didn't like the word church. Um, and I was teaching at the time and these kids were going to the Adventist school because it was the most conservative school around, uh, and homeschooling wasn't big here at the time. So I guess the parents had, had, didn't use that option. But I remember looking at the Adventist girls in the class who were in jeans and t-shirts, but no makeup, no jewelry. And then the girls from this other group who had their hair down to their waist, because they didn't believe in women cutting their hair, skirts down to their ankles, but then also some nice tasteful makeup and some jewelry. And I thought it really drove home to me just the arbitrariness of these rules and, you know, how different groups, you know, one thing is, you know, for, for Adventists, at least of my generation, I think it's not really a thing anymore, except in the most conservative Adventist circles, but certainly for my generation, not wearing jewelry was a huge thing. And then within this other group, not cutting your hair was the huge thing. And both, you know, thought and probably had parents who thought, you know, we're doing the right thing to keep our, you know, to, to keep our kids on the right path. Uh, but yeah, I thought the, 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 contrast and comparison between Adventist and Mennonite communities in this uh, in this novel was an interesting example of that of saying you know that what's uh, you know uh, what's an absolute um the law of God to to one community which is you know vegetarian or even a vegan diet is completely irrelevant to the other but both are convinced that you know we're we're doing it we're doing it God's way we're doing it we're doing it the biblical way and of course I love the fact I haven't read it yet but I love the fact that I found out that your first book is called Mennonites Don't Dance because of course that's another you know uh, stereotypical thing in in traditional Adventist culture is you know that uh, the, the not dancing uh, so that uh, that's again, really speaks to me to both the similarities and the contrasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I I had my ears pierced when I was a Mennonite, and um, and my, my mom warned, my grandparents may not like it, but they probably won't say anything. Just, you know, just wear small studs um, so that you, you're respectful, and but you're, you know, you can still be yourself. And, and I really appreciate that to this day, that she let me go ahead and do that. She also let me go to dances, but I was instructed not to tell my grandparents, because that would kill them. <laughs> um, but then I, I moved to live with my, my dad when I was 13. Um, and that's when I started going to my first Adventist Academy. So, no more jewelry. It was not something my dad encouraged or liked anyway. Um, something he was very much against. Um, and, you know, he, he expected his daughters to be extremely modest. Uh, so my, my piercings grew in. Um, sometime later, he was married. I was probably 30. I decided I was going to get them pierced again. You know, I was a grown up. I could decide what to do. So I just got, um, just got a single piercing and my grandmother-in-law, my, my husband's grandmother came walking up behind me and flicked the back of my earlobe and then just looked at me and walked away. And, um, and 
I hadn't realized what a big deal that might be to her. And um, and later on, my sister-in-law was thinking about getting her ears pierced. And I thought, you know, not a big deal. You know, it's you're you're in your 20s, do what you want. Um, you know, this this is where I would go to make sure that they are, you know, using hygiene practices and so on. And and then she told her mother about it and and oh, were we both in trouble that I had encouraged her or, or even suggested that it might be okay that she got teeny tiny little diamond studs. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's amazing how pervasive some of these tattoos, the tattoos, taboos. I think I was thinking about tattoos before I said taboos. Um, but yeah, how, how, how deep-seated some of these taboos are, you know. Well, even yeah. my um, my wedding dress, I couldn't get married at my home church in Kelowna because I bared my shoulders. I had to I had to rent a different church that would allow me to show my shoulders. Oh my! And goodness. somebody else um, had the exact same bridesmaids' dresses as me that year, um, and they were also off the shoulder, but they were allowed to be worn at our home church. Um, because they added tiny little half inch straps that looked absolutely yeah. ridiculous. They covered nothing, but they <laughs> adhered to the letter of the law that there was some coverage of the shoulder and it was absolute nonsense. Yeah. And that's what that sort of thing so often is about, of course, is the letter of the law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, my last question here is Adventists are always interested in what other people think of them until they <laughs> hear it sometimes. But I'm, just, I'm curious how your, um, your Mennonite audience has reacted, you know, any kind of interesting anecdotes, a way to characterize this, you know, is it an, do they feel like this is an introduction to Adventism? Or do they just see this as sort of a passing, interesting, weird kind of local sect? Or or how is it for them? I'm not sure. With with Stillwater, I'm not sure. Time is still going to tell. It's um, Stillwater is only two months old. So there's still a ways to go until Canadian awards season, which is when things really kind of start to pick up. And summer summer is not really when things are taking off as well. So we're kind of at a slow, steady burn and word is getting out there. Um, so, yeah, Mennonites are absolutely fa fascinated by the food. They just cannot believe, you know, seeing it in print. It's something I've talked about, but seeing it in print, that this is actually food that people make and people eat when you could be having sausages and <laughs> cream gravy and, um, you know, canned meats like um, click, uh, which is a version of um, spam. Um, but the, it's the Mennonite version of spam, and you, you could be having that, and and you're you're going to all this trouble to make something out of peanut butter. Like why why would you? <laughs> do that? So they're absolutely fascinated because it helps them to validate themselves. I think. Mm. But of course, with Mennonites don't dance, I really sh kind of shone a light on them as well as you know their Im imperfections and and their inconsistencies, and um, so there was. A, a large swath, the province that I'm in right now is, is Alberta. And the very, very far north of Alberta is occupied by very conservative uh, Mennonites. And um, a librarian picked up a copy of Mennonites Don't Dance um, on a recommendation, thinking that that would be just the kind of thing that they would like to have in their library for their Mennonite readers. Well, they vet every book before they put it on the shelves, and they didn't get past the first page before they declared that it was blasphemous, and they banned it 
you know, mm. and this was a public library. They're not allowed to do that, but they, they sent it back to me. They wanted their money back, which I refused. It wasn't my money. <laughs> they had bought it from a bookseller, but they got in touch with me to tell me how disappointed they were. And, um, and I accepted the book back. And that's the one that I always take with me when I do readings because, um, I find that so amusing and I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated at the time, but I think I've grown a thicker skin and, um, you know, more prepared for these kinds of things. So if it happens among um, conservative Adventists, I'm, I think I'm ready. I hope I'm ready for it. And um, so, yeah, Mennonites, Mennonites, like I said at the beginning, they're, they're accustomed to seeing themselves in print. They're um, even their universities, they have classes where they study themselves as, as fictional characters now and they quite love it unless they're in far north alberta then they <laughs> still hate it <laughs> so if anybody needs a book band that's where you need to try to send it um and then yeah i mean so far the reception among adventists with Stillwater um has been like this um and i would love to see that continue but i'm also a realist and We'll see, you know, once award season comes up and if Stillwater is noticed and, you know, gets out into the media more and more, um, even just with word of mouth and, and other reviews, we'll see how Adventists of, of other ways of thinking um, come to view it. Well, I will be uh, uh, paying attention to the Canadian Book Awards and uh, cheering <laughs> As you for should, you. as you should. Me too. Absolutely. I'll be really interested. You know, I I think this is a book that, you know, not just from the Adventist perspective, but just Mm -hmm. generally as a Canadian novel, I think, like I said in the review, it should, it should be a contender for one of Canada's great pandemic novels uh, because, and I think that's a genre that, you know, we should all be looking at how people are writing about the COVID pandemic uh, Mm -hmm. and just the way it looks into that heart of how, even religious communities were were divided by uh, pitted against both the government and against each other uh, by COVID. I think is is such a really yeah. interesting aspect of the novel that we haven't really gone into a lot here. But that I think makes mm. it just a piece that is so much of its particular time and place. Uh, so yeah, I hope it gets I hope it gets a lot of attention and some awards. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that that last that was kind of a, the last graft because, of course, starting this 13 years mm-hmm. ago, that was not on my radar. <laughs> but it's something I experienced very deeply within my family, and not necessarily Mennonites or Adventists, um, but within my family who have gone in other Christian directions. Uh, mm-hmm. We are we were so divided, and, especially uh, if you're living in Alberta now. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's yeah, like, exactly. Like yeah. nobody was conservative enough, and like I family who are absolutely paying attention to all of the conspiracy theories. And to me, that was that was devastating. That was heartbreaking, and that was three months of therapy. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably true for a lot of families, especially religious mm-hmm. families. Um, who oh, yeah. fell on either sides of that dividing line of wanting to protect themselves, their families, and others, and feeling like that fulfilled um, the law of love your neighbor. Um, um, and others who felt like it was being pushed on them and there was some kind of agenda and um, took a more libertarian view of it, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not going to speak to because I do not understand it mm-hmm. to this day. I, I can maybe understand it intellectually, 
um, but I cannot rationalize it. And I, in my heart, I, I just don't know how to get there. So I, I, I put Lizzie in that position and it was a really hard position for her to be in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it comes across so well. Yeah. And that the divisiveness of that time, you know, which I think we all lived through, I think it's captured so well there. Mm, thank yeah. You. I think we're, I, we, yeah, I think we're, um, I think the, it opened up fissures in the Adventist world where mm -hmm. people were able to even critique our conservative leaders like Ted Wilson from the right or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. maybe the conspirituality yeah. side of things. I have uh, uh, our uh, intern, summer intern, um, Isabella Coe is uh, writing a review of the book Conspirituality, which kind of looks at how uh, conspiracy theories and spirituality end up kind of creating that kind of horseshoe where folks on the right and left uh, mm -hmm. suddenly find common ground. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to need to read that, both both the review and the book, that because um, that's something I, I keep just having conversations about how you go so far right, so far left, and you just join. Yeah, um, yeah. you end up in a weird place. Yeah, and, and it seems like a really tragic place. It is, yeah. Well, it's been great talking with you. Um, it's the opposite of a weird place. It's been a very <laughs> uh, fun, comforting place to explore. And thanks for uh, writing about uh, Adventists. As an Adventist, I appreciated it. And mm -hmm. uh, I definitely recommend it to the Spectrum audience. It's a mm -hmm. great fall read, I would say, late summer fall read. And uh um, looking forward to what you continue to do in this space, Darcy. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.